Good morning. Welcome to church. Um, and if you're online, welcome again. Uh, look, you've been sitting for a little while. If you want to stand up and stretch a little bit, feel free to do that. Why don't you do that? Just because I know the pews are hard and we haven't replaced the soft, the soft, nice cushions yet, just because it's easier to clean hard pews. So I understand if your bums are getting a bit numb. Um, I had to close that door because it was smelling too good and it was just irresistible. Uh, lunch is going to be amazing. So yeah, can't wait. Alrighty, um, so this is a, a, a wanted ad, or I'm sorry, an employment ad for Need A Lot Church, seeking a senior pastor. Have a look there. Uh, so the senior pastor has to be the chairman of the board and have omniscient knowledge of all activities in the church, agree with and support all board members' opinions, even if those opinions aren't in agreement. Uh, he has to be able to preach and preach powerful, convicting, thoroughly deep expository messages that are no longer than 20 minutes, must include stories, jokes, and illustrations too, oh, and use the Holy Spirit, address all church issues and needs, don't address issues and needs that make people uncomfortable, don't offend people with your preaching, but don't worry about offending people in your preaching. It sounds like a contradiction, but really it's not. Uh, You also have to be a counsellor, so be careful though to limit the amount of time you spend on counselling. It is not your first priority. Spend time counseling with any member who needs it anytime they need it, as long as they need it. Leadership. Be omnipresent. You are expected to attend all meetings and events, even those that are at the same time in different places. You need to provide leadership by being the hands and feet of Jesus, i.e. we don't have a cleaner and no one will pick up the old disposable cup left on the floor three weeks ago. Summary. As the senior pastor, you will be expected to be attending prayer meetings, staff meetings, and other events purposeful to the mission of the church, including weekends and holidays. You are allotted four weeks of annual leave a year, but we reserve the right to grumble about you being away, and you will be paid just enough to keep you humble and obedient to Philippians 4.13. As you can probably tell, that's not a serious job ad, but it's actually true enough for, well, those of us who are, those like me who are pastors, that we kind of have a bit of a chuckle, because sometimes the demands are kind of crazy. Um, we happen to be a great church. I love working for Swag, and the demands are not like that at all. But you read something like that, and if you know any pastors, or some of you may have pastor uh, relatives, parents even, you'd be asking yourself, who in their right mind would want to do something like that? Who in their right mind would want to give their life to full-time gospel ministry? But maybe it's not even that. I mean, for example, if you have been slugging it out, serving at church in whatever ministries this year at SWEC, Maybe you're a CG leader, a community group leader, a Sunday school teacher. Maybe you serve in the music ministry, a support ministry, youth leading, discipling someone. This year has been so hard, hasn't it? So disrupted, so discouraging. Why would anyone in their right mind continue or want to take on something like that? Well, we're looking at our relaunch sermon series for the next few weeks, and we want to apply it to ministry. And by ministry, let me be clear, this is not a special thing that only some people are called to do. The word ministry just means service. It's actually what all followers of Jesus are called to do, to serve. And as I said a couple of weeks ago when we started this series, we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians and kind of glean, not going to go through verse by verse, but glean from 1 Thessalonians ideas about the gospel relaunch. And today we'll see that Though serving, though ministry is hard and at times heartbreaking, I want you to see from 1 Thessalonians that it's absolutely worth it. Because at the end of the day, here's the thing, 
God wants us to share in His joy as we invest in the lives of His people. So let's do that. Let's relaunch gospel ministry. Why don't you pray with me as we look at this passage? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, show to us your heart for people through the example of the Apostle Paul and his relationship with these baby Christians at Thessalonica. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you will make all of us want to serve, even if it's hard, want to continue, want to be faithful because of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So these chapters, we didn't get to read the whole of chapters 2 and 3. It'd be worth reading uh, sometime if you get to. But you get a glimpse into the ministry history of Paul amongst these Christians, this church at uh, Thessalonica. Uh, I've got three points, and we here learn about ministry motivation, then we learn about ministry commitment, and then ministry joy. So let's go. Firstly, motivation. Let's have a look at the verses, some of the verses we read earlier. Verse 1, chapter 2. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor do we put on a master to cover up greed. God is our witness. We're not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Um, you might have noticed there, there's actually three sets of contrasts in verses 3 to 7. When he says, what doesn't motivate gospel ministry, and then he flips it and says, well, instead, what does? Now, uh, we won't go through them uh, contrast by contrast. Let's just give, me a sum- give you a summary. Essentially, he's saying, I don't do it to trick, to deceive, not for any underhanded financial gain. Essentially, he's saying, I'm not getting anything out of this. This is not the motivation. Instead, the key verse is verse 4, isn't it? Where he says, we are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. See, who, who is Paul, the apostle? Who is he performing for? Not anyone. Not even the people he's ministering to. Not the people looking outside. Not people checking his Instagram feed. He's performing to an audience of just one God. So I wonder, if you do serve, or if you want to serve in ministry, in whatever form, what are you motivated by? See, it's entirely possible, isn't it, to be doing it because of what you can gain out of it. Now, I know for most of us, it's not going to be financial gain. But there's other stuff you can gain out of it, right? Approval. Reputation, glory. Look through enough Christians' ministry, uh, sorry, um, Instagram or Facebook feeds, you'll see a lot of humble brags. You know what they are? Right? You're doing it because people are watching you, because people will click like. It's things that you can brag about in certain Christian circles. Now, when you hear that, I don't know how you feel. I, when I hear that, I think, hang on, how do I know if my motives are pure? Because you know, sometimes it is pretty mixed, isn't it? Our motives aren't entirely always pure. If we wait until our motives are absolutely pure and we're certain, then probably for the majority of us, myself included, we probably would never serve, right? 
I'll tell you one way you can test and purify your motives. What's that way? It's suffering. Yeah, that's right, suffering. Believe it or not, suffering. Did you notice when in these verses, Paul, say, Paul mentions in verse 2, how before coming to the city of Thessalonica, um, he mentions how he suffered. Now, if you want to read up on it, it's actually in Acts chapter 16. He's in Philippi, a nearby city, where he gets flogged and he gets jailed. Later on, uh, in verses we didn't read, verses 14 to 16, he talks about the opposition that came from the Jews of the city of Thessalonica. Right? He goes there, he tells them the gospel, some people become Christians, but then the Jews are jealous, so they rise up and they chase him out of the city. And then they actually chase him from city to city to city. Right? Suffering. Paul did it both, suffered both before and during and after his time with these people, with his ministry with these people. You see, motivation is tested and refined by suffering and hardship. Now, why, why is that? Why is motivation tested and refined by suffering? Well, it's because, here's the thing, if the reason for you serving is built on anything other than pleasing and serving God alone, then what's going to happen when you suffer and there's opposition and hardship? You're going to abandon ship, aren't you? I mean, if you're doing ministry for financial gain, you're going to stop when the money runs out or when there's no money. If you're doing it for personal approval, you will stop when conflict invariably happens because we are imperfect people in a church community. Conflict happens. And you'll stop when people misunderstand you. If you do it for self-satisfaction, you'll stop when discouragement comes or progress stalls. Now I'm a bit older than probably most of you here. I belong to a generation that's now called Generation X, which is before the Generation Y or Millennials and before the Generation Z. One thing I love about Millennials and Gen Z um, uh, is your creativity and the way that you try new things and you're not afraid to do that. One thing as someone older I do notice, however, about Millennials and Gen Z is that it's kind of hard for you to stick at things. Am I right? I'm not off the mark, am I? And it's really hard, I think, for millennials and Gen Z to stick at ministry through hardships. And it's a little bit of a reflection of the, I mean, you can see it in the job market nowadays, right? My dad worked the same company from graduation until retirement. Today, if you're at the same job or the company even for five years, it's counted as an eternity, yeah? Because the message of our culture to millennials, to Gen Z is, you are to do what helps you achieve your goals, what actualizes you. Now, former generations, you would work for money and advancement. Nowadays, no, 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 you don't work for that kind of stuff, ultimately. You're chasing personal fulfillment. That's much more important than money. But what's the problem with that? The moment a job doesn't fulfill these goals, you're going to find another one, right? And the job market reflects that. Now, I want to say that's, okay for jobs. It's the way it is. In fact, you may not be able to get a job if you've only been working the same job for 10 years nowadays. Strangely enough, you know, they want to see you've tried different things. But I want to tell you, it's really, really damaging for ministry, isn't it? Now, not that you can never change what you do in serving at church ministries. Not that you can't try things that are aligned, more aligned with your gifts and passions. They're all okay. But please don't let that be your ultimate motivation, 
self-actualization, personal fulfillment, discovering the real me. Because well, I'll tell you what, the moment ministry gets hard, and it will, the moment you don't find it fulfilling, what's going to happen? You're going to quit. Have you encountered difficulty in your area of service? The purity of your motivation might be being tested right now. And yet, your motivations might have been mixed going into it. I'll tell you what, hardship will refine it. Hardship will purify it. It will test it. See, what we are looking for at Southwest Evangelical Church, what the staff team and elders, I believe, model, we're looking for people who will last through ministry hardships, who will stick at them because they're genuinely motivated by God and God alone. And we hope that's you. Motivation. Next point, commitment. Um, Verse number seven, Paul, you'll notice there mentions that he's like an infant. Uh, And then after he talks about being an infant, he's going to take up two more images or metaphors from the home or the parenting sphere to show how much he is committed and how much he loves them. Uh, and those two, not surprisingly, are going to be mum and dad. So firstly, let's look at his mum metaphor. Did you uh, notice there, second half of verse 7, he says, Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. All right, like a mum with her baby. We're talking about deep, deep, deep affection and love. So much so that Paul uses a word in verse 8 translated there as cared, but it's actually used nowhere else in the New Testament. Um, The English Standard Version, the ESV, translates it as affectionately desirous, all right? Which is something you never use in real life, but it's trying to get at a word that means something really intense, um, you guys know Brett and Jeanette. Jackson just had a baby. Are they here? No. If you're watching at home, Brett and Jeanette. Um, Brett told me as he popped by the other day, he said he never th- knew how strong the emotions of a first-time dad could be, that you would do anything for this child, that you would do anything to protect this child from anything or anyone. You know what that feels like? That's what we're talking about here. Affectionately desirous. It's a kind of doting, almost embarrassing love of a parent for their own child. Currently, my Facebook feed this time of the year is full of people's school photos from presentation because all my friends my age, you know, having kids and it's their HSCs, it's their formal pics, it's their graduation pics. Um, Every post so full of pride and love and affection. I mean, just for something little like graduating kindy. Now, if you're not their parent, it's a bit puzzling, maybe even a little bit embarrassing. But if you're their parent, right, you're glowing with pride and affection. This is what Paul's love was like. And, it, and verse 8, look there, verse 8. It's a complete unguarded opening up of Paul's heart and soul. That's what his love looks like, his affection for them. He says, it's not, I, I was delighted not only to share the good news of Jesus with you, but my whole life, or literally my soul as well. Yeah, you got that? Paul shared his life. He went right into their midst. Uh, He didn't stand above them as a teacher of apostle, right? Remember verse 7, he says, we were like an infant with you. That is, 
I got low. I did life with you at your level. Such was his commitment and love. Now, why would he do that? Well, he did that because that's simply what Jesus did, right? He's doing what his master and our Lord Jesus did. And we won't read it, but in Philippians 2, you know the famous passage, you may know it. It says that Jesus was in very nature God, but he didn't use that to his advantage. Instead, he became a man. He came down to our level. He served us. Jesus did life with us. He bared his soul with us. If you want to see a really great uh, picture of that, have a watch of the, the, the series, The Chosen, of Jesus with the life of his disciples up close and personal. It's an amazing show. Watch it. And then what did Jesus do? He died for us out of his outrageous affection and love for us. How big was his commitment? Well, his commitment to us was sealed with his blood and held by nails on the cross. Paul was just doing what Jesus did. Now, by the way, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus or you're on your spiritual journey to becoming one, can I just say, you will never be loved like Jesus loves you. You'll never understand how much God's heart is for you. So if you're on the journey to finding out more, don't stop. Come talk to me. Come talk to the friend who brought you. He's worth knowing, isn't he? Because he loves you that much. But coming back to Paul, Paul was just being like Jesus. And all of us ministering in whatever way, we need to be as committed as well. Like that nursing mother, that kind of care, that kind of affection, that kind of openness with people. Now this is a reminder here, isn't it? That all church ministry, all serving within the Christian community is people ministry. You got that? You may be put on a roster, but you don't serve a roster. You serve people. And I I don't just mean the the direct people ministries like teaching and caring for people, CG, youth, Sunday school. No, no. Even support ministries, putting out chairs, operating tech, cleaning, cooking, it's all people ministry. So do it because you love people, yeah? Not because you've been put on a roster, do it with your soul put into it. Hold nothing back, because that's what it means to love people. I, I just love, I've loved David's announcements last week and this week about church lunch, right? I mean, he's exactly right. This is how David and John are loving people. They're not just cooking food. They're loving you and me. That's exactly right. Well, first mums, but now dads. Let's have a look at the next few verses. Verse 9. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. Your witnesses and so is God of how holy, righteous, and blameless we are among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory." All right, so we've seen the mums, love and commitment. What does love and commitment look like for dads? Well, it's shown in hard work, in modeling, and in leadership. Now, our culture is pretty confused, isn't it, about the role of men and especially the role of fathers because so many have had bad fathers. <laughs> but in the ancient world, it was pretty clear that dads, well, they had to do certain things. They had to work hard. They were the primary breadwinners, 
right? There were no double incomes in the ancient world. They had to work hard to make sure their family was provided for. And so Paul says, well, that's what I was like as an apostle and teacher, right? In the ancient world, you were expected, if you were a good teacher, you were expected to charge money. Paul says, I'm going to work for free. In fact, I'm going to work hard so I can support myself so that you wouldn't have to support me because that's what I would do as a dad, right? Dads support their kids, not kids support dads. And then the other thing that dads did in the ancient world was they modeled, especially to their son. They had to pass on the trade, the family business. And so Paul says, that's what I did. I led by example with my blameless, holy life. And dads also, what do they do? They lead and they teach their children and lead them towards a goal to help them become responsible adults, to stand on their own two two feet. Well, Paul says, that's what I did. I'm committed to see you guys, my spiritual children, through to spiritual adulthood, through to spiritual maturity. Now, there's so much, so much there. I could like take each one of those points and apply it in detail, but we don't have time. I just want to know one thing. Like with so many people, right, coming to know Jesus, but from broken homes and broken families and broken parenting experiences, I just want to take a step back and say Paul's metaphors that he uses mum and dad in the context of church, well, that's, this reminds us that church is supposed to be a greater spiritual family, yeah? And it can really make up for what people may not have had, what you, some of you may not have had from your biological families. That's what church community can be like. And so it's worth me saying it again. I know I keep saying it. That if you are older than someone at church, and by the way, that's pretty much all of you, unless you're a baby, okay? If you, even those of you in high school are older than someone at church. If you are older than, than someone at church, you can be a spiritual dad or mom or at least a big brother or sister. You can be that to someone else. Those of us who remember what it was like um, when we were baby Christians ourselves, remember who was like that to you. I can think of so many people who were like spiritual dads and older brothers and older sisters to me. Who loved you like that? Who worked hard for you like that? Who discipled you and modeled and led? You know what? Have you ever thought about paying that forward? Someone's done that for you. Why don't you do that for someone else? Be that spiritual family, dad, mom, brother, or sister, in an active and intentional way, right? That's ministry. Last of all, joy. Um, We didn't get to read uh, chapter 2, verses 13, all the way to the end of chapter 3, as I said. Have a read of that yourself. Um, But let me give you some background events so that you understand when you come to read it. in Acts chapter 17 is where we get this, uh, what actually happened in the historical account. What happens is Paul, so he starts that church in the city of Thessalonica. And soon after, maybe just weeks later, he, as I said, he was chased out of the city. So these were baby Christians. They'd just become Christians. The church had just been founded and Paul had to leave them. Right? You can imagine how he felt. So later on, he sends his uh, protege, his apprentice Timothy, back to them to see how they were doing. And then Timothy goes, um, spends some time visiting them, and he comes back to Paul with good news. These new baby Christians, they were doing well. In fact, they were doing really well, Timothy says. Like we looked at two weeks ago, they modeled 
faith, love, and hope. And as we looked at last week, they modeled repentance, right? And Paul writes this letter that we're reading as a response. So that's the background. Now, when you read these verses, chapter 2, 13 to the end of chapter 3, you will get a feel for Paul's uncontainable joy when he's heard this good news about them. And this joy, right, is something else. But you need to know that the joy comes against the background or the backdrop of fear and anxiety, right? He was fearful and he was anxious. Why? Well, remember what I said. He was separated from them. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you, right? During COVID, you may have known, during the really bad months, when a whole family came down with COVID, mom and dad had to stay separately with their kids. Often the kids would be in children's hospital. Mom and dad would be in another hospital, kilometers away, orphaned from their children, children orphaned from their parents. I can't imagine what it would have been like as an anxious parent with my child potentially on a ventilator or in danger, or at least in quarantine, in another hospital. That's what it feels like to be torn away from your children. This is how Paul felt. And then to have a look at chapter 3, verse 5. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. You see how emotionally and personally vulnerable Paul is when he writes these things? I mean, he's so vulnerable, it's almost to the point of embarrassment that he should share that with him. You don't need to know the popular ancient philosophy of the day was something called Stoicism. Have you heard of Stoicism? In Stoicism, it would be very unbecoming of a respected teacher and philosopher to be so open and so vulnerable and so raw about their emotions. By the way, this is how you tell the difference between uh, Christianity and a cult. And cults are pretty active, by the way, right now, so you've got to be careful. In a cult, the leaders expect the followers to be vulnerable, but they themselves will stay untouchable and unapproachable. Yeah? In the true church, the body of Christ, the leaders take the initiative to be vulnerable. But vulnerability is costly, isn't it? I mean, if, if you've truly ministered to anyone over a long period of time, you will know the cost I mean, you love someone that much, you care about them that much, you open yourself to people that much, you are going to get hurt. In gospel ministry, you get hurt again and again and again. Some of us carry so many scars, have cried so many tears for every person who has walked away from God or the church or misunderstood you or have spoken badly about you, that you now have a conflict with. Ministry is hard and heartbreaking. I wonder if you've experienced it. If so, you are in good company. You're doing something right. This is normal. But remember what I said. This is the backdrop of hardship and heartbreak, but against that backdrop is joy. This is the focus of these chapters. Joy that you can't even put into words. I want you to listen to Paul's joy. Chapter 3, verse 6. Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He's told us 
that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you're standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. When I was a ministry trainee, my trainer said to me, Christian ministry will give you the highest highs and the lowest lows. And he was absolutely right. The lows are low, really low. But the highs, the joys, like I, I don't know if this is a fair comparison, but I'm just going to put it out there. I don't care what else you do for work, what hobbies you do, what sense of joy you get from those hobbies or work. Nothing you do can compare to the joy of seeing God change a person's life and you get to be a part of that. Like there is just no comparison. Let me just give you some immediate examples. Last week, Daniel and Chrissy got baptized. Those of you who were their youth leaders, you want to tell me a little bit about how joyful that was for you? You can't even put it into words, can you? See, there is a reason why this joy is greater than any other joy you will experience in life. It's because this joy you will take with you to eternity. And you can do that with nothing else. Nothing you achieve in a job or a hobby you can take to eternity. But look at chapter 2, verse 19. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when He comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. You know in the New Testament, Jesus talks about different rewards in heaven. Whatever else they might be, and it's a controversial topic, we can talk about it some other time, but whatever else rewards in heaven might be, these rewards, I believe, are at least people. They're the primary reward. See, the more that you've given your life to invest in someone's eternity, the greater your reward and joy when you get to heaven, because they'll be there with you for all eternity. Can you imagine how joyful that will be? I mean, yes, there is nothing harder and more heartbreaking than being a pastor, but I would not, tra- I would not trade it for the world. Well, how can I even put into words the joy of seeing Stephen Coe becoming an elder and the kind of leader that he is? When I met him and began discipling him, he was some 18-year-old young punk straight out of high school. He was half the man he is now, literally, too. <laughs> Sorry, Steve. How can I put into words the joy of years ago meeting up with a few uni students called Dom Chung, Ivan Lee, Elliot Koo, and seeing the men of God that they've become? How can I put into words the countless conversions I've been privileged to be a part of? Marriages that Karen and I have had a hand in helping Children and youth we've seen grown into men and women of God. Like, I can't even put into words how joyful that is. So friends, if you're feeling weary and discouraged in ministry, don't give up. Now, even if it means taking a Sabbath, a rest from official roles, 
Don't give up serving people and loving people, even if it's unofficially. It's just as valuable. Now, if you, and there's probably people here, you've been sitting back and letting others serve you, well, maybe now is a good time to put up your hand to serve in 2022. Come and chat to me, Pastor Marshall, who's away today, but chat to him, but especially chat to Manny and Hamish, who are part of our mobilization team. They would love to know how to help you get into gospel ministry in the year to come. Let's pray. Let's get the band up. Get ready to sing. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you set the ultimate example of coming to our level, the love and commitment, the motivation and the joy that we see in this passage ultimately comes from you. I pray that we would be a church that is modeled on that by your Holy Spirit. And especially in the year to come where opportunities to grow and um, do mission and to relaunch mean that we need more, more people to be involved. We pray that you will empower us, mobilize us, spur us to get involved in serving in Jesus' name.